Das ist zu George Orwell widmen. Uh, ich heiße Lewis und hier ist meine Freund Simon. Welcome everyone. Uh, when you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Uh, state surveillance? Terrifying dystopias? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of teeth, hubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. I think of middle of the road podcasts ranked number 27 in Japan iTunes book section. Did we get up to number 27? We did. That's the best so far. That's Maybe we shouldn't tell people that. Maybe after this one that might go down a wee bit being in. But we'll see. Especially when people switch on and hear German to start with. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, today we're talking about a, an essay with a German connection. But before we get on to that, Simon, well, Pan-German. Pan-German. Um, Germanic. But before we start off, uh, Simon, tell me about how things are doing for you. Are you honestly well? I'm keeping on keeping on. How about you? Keeping on keeping on too. State of emergency has been extended, but uh, are we downhearted? No. No. I think we, we, we keep ourselves perky by discussing the future beyond the pandemic, don't we? And things we're going to do after... And uh, in the immediate sphere, also by eating good food and drinking oh, yeah. rather decent beer. How How is that Czech beer that you're drinking? It's nice. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's really nice. Nice and smooth. Pilsner Urkel. This one's um, very easy to get in Japan. I think that the company is probably owned by Asahi or Kirin or okay. someone. Well, today, everyone, we are talking about something a bit unusual. When I suggested this to Simon the other week, he was quite surprised that this essay existed because this is the review, or George Orwell's review of Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. Simon, uh, as I said, you were a bit surprised to learn that this existed in the first place. What was your reaction to this essay? It's a brilliant essay. I was surprised, but then I wasn't surprised when I read up a bit about it because so Mein Kampf was published in 1925 when Adolf Hitler was serving prison time for the failed Munich Beer Hall Putsch. And I just didn't realise that Orwell, I didn't think Orwell was active in 1925. Then I realised that this was an updated English translation of Mein Kampf that he is reviewing in 1940. Yes, published in New English Weekly, 21st of March 1940. So quite a lot had happened in the world between 1925 and 1940, hadn't it? Absolutely. So do you want me to give a bit of background to the book, Mein Kampf? Please do. Mein Kampf means? My struggle. My struggle. And we'll talk about that later, what that means, that word struggle and how that's quite important to this book. Do you know what it was originally going to be? called, or what Hitler wanted to call it. No. It was, um, part of my pronunciation, but Wirren halt Jahr des Kampf gegen Lüge, Dummheit und Feigheit. Doesn't trip off the tongue, does it? No, it doesn't. 
But that, well, in English, that means is four and a half years of struggle against lies, stupidity, and cowardice. And the, the publisher said, listen, I don't, that doesn't really work. How about my struggle? And he went along with it. Is this another case of a publisher coming up with an idea rather than the, the famous person who wrote the book? Because that reminds me of how, wasn't George Orwell's book Down and Out in Paris in London? It was originally going to be called something like... Uh, the, the memoirs of a dishwasher yeah, or something right. like that. And then it was Victor Galanch or, or one someone else in, in Victor Galanch's publishing house who came up with Down and Out in Paris and London. Well, Orwell wanted to go memoirs of a dishwasher. And they quite correctly said, George, people it's not gonna fly off the bookshelves. Well it didn't fly off the bookshelves under its uh, final title either. Not until he was dead not anyway. Until he was dead, yeah. So Lewis, what are the we won't go into too many details about what Mein Kampf was about, but what were the main themes of it? Of the book Mein Kampf? Of the book Mein Kampf. Well, I, unlike you, Simon, I'm not a student of history, but I, from what I've learned, Mein Kampf is basically Hitler's vanity project about how great he is, about how he is the true saviour of Germany, about how terribly downtrodden Germany was, and how the Jews are to blame for it all. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's a book about his life. It's, an, it's a biography. And the main themes are, like you said, he, he talks about his hatred for Judaism, his hatred for communism, the Germanic parliamentary system, and that form of democracy. And his hatred of Germany's surrender in the world, First World War and the Treaty of Versailles and the reparations Germany had to pay. And a large part of the book describes his feelings of the superiority of the Aryan race and the German people's need for Lebensraum, which means living space in the East. I mentioned before, Simon, you are actually a trained historian. Um, I'm not. Have, have you actually ever read Mein Kampf or parts of Mein Kampf? I've not read it from front to back, but I've read enough snippets of it to, to have a pretty good idea of the nonsense it's spouting. I, I've never read it. It's one of those books that, um, and I think we're going to get into the kind of temporal, as Simon likes to say, the temporal aspects of this essay later, but it's one of those books that for anyone living after 1945, it just exudes any right-thinking person, this book will exude a kind of aura of evil and foulness, I yeah. think. It's interesting. So the book isn't that evil until he starts talking about his views of the Jewish people. And he says at the beginning that he, he wasn't an anti-Semite, he says, until he moved to Vienna. And he, he goes on to talk about how he realised that the press was controlled by the Jews, the financial systems, and they were the cause of all evil. But he wasn't born an anti-Semite. It wasn't until he was in his 20s that he became an anti-Semite. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the wrong. general... I should never say that to you, should I? Um, isn't the general historian's view of Hitler's anti-Semitism, isn't it that it kind of developed as a reaction to his 
the rejection of his paintings when he was living in Austria, because uh, the there was a, a certain, you know, Austria was a big, Vienna especially, was a big Jewish centre before the First World War, and a lot of Jewish people were involved in the art trade and the art uh, world. So what, isn't the general idea that Hitler kind of started to resent the art world because no one would buy his paintings and then that's I think that's a very that's a very history channel view of mm. it. I mean if you read people such as AJP Taylor, who's probably the seminal author of before these things, it's a lot more complex than that than these things are. But I suppose that could be a pretty good way of generalizing it. He as a young man, until the First World War, he like many young men and women do around the world, went through a series of failures as he was trying to make a name for himself and when we suffer failure setback after setback we do look for an escape code don't we yes and we see that in our own society these days particularly young men experiencing hard times and failure will yeah. often if they don't have a positive outlet for their energies they'll latch on to one kind of extremism or another exactly. we see that in various communities as well various different religious communities various different uh, sections of society. This is always a danger. And we, we shouldn't pretend that anti-Semitism didn't exist in German culture before Hitler. It did. And it's something Hitler latched, latched onto. Yeah. So let's go back to the title of Mein Kampf, My Struggle. And it's very interesting what Orwell says about that. He says, he, Hitler, is the martyr, the victim, promiscuous, chained to the rock, the self-sacrificing hero who fights single-handed against impossible odds. If he were killing a mouse, he would know how to make it seem like a dragon. One feels, as with Napoleon, that he is fighting against destiny, that he can't win, and yet somehow he deserves to. The attraction of such a, a pose is, of course, enormous. Half the films that one sees turn upon such a theme. So the, the editor was very clever in getting the word struggle into the title of this book. The concept of struggle is very important in this essay, isn't it? Yes, and it was something I wanted to bring up, how Orwell mentions that Hitler is very much posed as a kind of, almost like a victim. Um, Orwell writes about how in Hitler's face, you know, Orwell writes, this is page 251 of the Everyman edition, it is a pathetic dog-like face, yes. the face of a man suffering under intolerable wrongs, and this is a rather shocking bit, but in a rather more manly way, it's very Orwellian, in a rather more manly way, it reproduces the expression of innumerable pictures of Christ crucified. And there is little doubt that that is how Hitler sees himself. Now, maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, but this really reminded me of a feature of fascism, which is that we, when we hear the word fascism, we think of kind of big burly men in brown shirts marching and being very macho. But a feature of fascism and a feature of authoritarianism is victimhood, isn't it, Simon? Of all populism, of all extremist movements, that doggish, rather meek, pathetic image of Hitler was cultivated 
he, he, he wanted to make himself look like the man who had gone through struggle, who had fought against the odds to be who he is. For his nation. For his nation. And what does that say to your, your average man on the street? I can do it too. And what does that say in particular to the man in a street in a nation which has lost a war, like Germany, and where people are feeling hard done by because of the Treaty of Versailles? This Orwell is showing in this essay how, I mean, this essay could be a, a set text for people trying to learn how Hitler came to power. He took the uh, sense of wrong and the sense of victimhood that the German people felt because of the loss of the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles, and he, he aligned himself with it through this kind of image of the martyr, uh, Germany was the martyr of Europe and, and Hitler was the martyr of Germany to, to the people of the 1930s. Exactly. The self-sacrificing hero. Which is something that dictators in general love to position themselves as. I, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not comparing. It's, you're getting on shaky ground when you compare dictators from different yeah. uh, ideologies. But, but. how often... How often do you see this concept of the dictator who sacrifices his life for the nation? Our great leader who stays up working through the night with the cares of the nation on his shoulders so that we may sleep safely in yeah. our beds. It, 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 it lasts until this day, as does this sense of victimhood. Authoritarian countries around the world at this minute are told by their leaders that they are beset on all sides by people who hate them. And that's why the press isn't free. That's why elections aren't free. I mean, Hitler even kept his relationship with Ava Brown secret because he needed, he needed the people to think that his life was Germany, the vault. He couldn't possibly have time for a personal relationship. And he cultivated this kind of ascetic image didn't he that he was a vegetarian didn't smoke didn't drink and we now know that you know he, he did a, eat mostly a vegetable diet but he did eat fish he did enjoy the luxuries the finer things in life he drank a bit he certainly didn't smoke though and that was something his inner circle wasn't very pleased about but what he didn't do i think goering made up for mm. when it comes to the hedonistic lavish lifestyle so let's go back to the beginning of the essay Orwell begins by outlining the apologists for Hitler, of whom there were many, mostly the property-owning classes, who had an admiration for how Hitler had crushed the labour unions, emboldened industry, and controlled the press. I mean, look at Prince Edward's journey to, see, to visit Hitler. The ruling classes of Britain, and this is my opinion, and... Orwell's opinion, I'm not saying it's a state fact, let me get that clear, were rather fawning of the pre-war Hitler. Well, yes, let's not forget that before the war, as Orwell points out in this essay, Hitler was seen as just another fascist leader. Mm. Mussolini had been in power for 10 years before yeah. Hitler I imagine if you'd asked someone in 1929 which European leader could 
conquer the rest of Europe. They might have said Mussolini. Mussolini. Um, well, it, it was until the Abyssinian conflict when France, Great Britain realised Italy was never going to be a threat to Europe when they, they botched an invasion of Abyssinia, which is now known as Ethiopia. And they, they could barely win a war against people fighting with very primitive weapons. And they had tanks, airplanes and all sorts. So that's when people realised that Italy wasn't a threat to European peace. But Orwell makes the point that prior to 1939, Hitler was just seen as a kind of another, another Mussolini who was going to crush the communists, silence the labour unions and impose this kind of ultra-conservatism. So why are the ruling classes in countries like France and Britain so terrified of the communists? Well, because the Russian Revolution is only about 15 years in the past, um, and the labour unions in these countries have been making a lot of noise through the 20s, and particularly the 30s, and uh, there are those in the upper classes who would like to see those voices silenced. So they look to Mussolini and they look to Hitler and they think, well, could we do that in our own country? And there's an allure of communism. People don't know about the effects of Stalinism yet. They don't know about the, the famine in the Ukraine and the purges. So there is a very enticing allure of communism. And the ruling classes are terrified of this. Private property is the basis of their wealth. Orwell writes very interestingly, both left and right concurred, this is before the Second World War started, both left and right concurred in the very shallow notion that National Socialism was merely a version of conservatism. Simon, you always like to use this word temporal when we talk about George Orwell's yeah. essays, meaning that how would this essay have been viewed at the time it was exactly. written, and how can we appreciate the mindset of the time? And this was the mindset of the time. People did not yet know. People knew Hitler was anti-Semitic, but the full horrors of Nazism were not perfectly understood. And make no mistake, anti-Semitism is not a Germanic concept. No. In Great Britain, people were very, in all the world, people were very anti-Semitic before the Second World War. And just to point out, I mean, recently I've been reading Down and Out in Paris and London. I love Orwell. I think he's a great writer. There are parts of Down and Out in Paris and London where some of the ways Orwell talks about Jewish people, yeah. they've made me a bit uncomfortable as a 21st century person. It took one, the, one of the most horrific events of human history, that being the Holocaust, to make anti-Semitism openly disgusting. But before it, it was very... Folk, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not accepted, but... Tolerated. Tolerated, yeah. It was sort of a, a background thing in society, wasn't it? It was. But temporality is important in any historical document because it, space and time are the two most vital concepts to understand why and how anything is written. The discourse of anything is important to be put into the context because time and space are important in the accumulation of knowledge and understanding of knowledge. I'm sorry if I'm getting a bit too wordy no. with the explanation, but that's why I use the word so often. 
So when is this essay written exactly? Well, it was published in March 1940, and I believe at that point Britain was still in the middle of what was called the Phony War. Yeah. Britain had been at war with Germany since September, but nothing had really happened yet. Well, he's invaded Poland. Sorry, Poland. <laughs> yeah. He's invaded, but the, the, the invasion of the Benelux countries in France hasn't yet begun. It's around the corner. And no bombing yet. Either. No bombing. The, Blitz, the Battle of Britain hasn't happened. The Blitz hasn't started. So, in fact, is Chamberlain still Prime Minister he at is. this point? Yeah, so the prophecy that comes late in this essay is incredible. Because Orwell, unlike most of the British public, has read and studied Mein Kampf. And the thing that Hitler writes about the most, apart from his anti-Semitism in Mein Kampf, is Lebensraum living space for the German people to expand into, where they can create a society based on the earth, based on the soil. And that Lebensraum is going to come in the East. Could I just read out this quote from Orwell here? Um, suppose, 250 in the Everyman edition, uh, suppose that Hitler's programme could be put into effect. What he envisages, a hundred years hence, is a continuous state of 250 million Germans with plenty of living room, Lebensraum, i.e. stretching to Afghanistan or thereabouts. A horrible brainless empire in which essentially nothing ever happens except the training of young men for war and the endless breeding of fresh cannon fodder. You're quite right there, Simon. What did you think, uh, again, I want to ask you as a trained historian, Recently, I watched a very good video on YouTube, uh, the channel Four Minute Histories, and this video was all about the origins of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. By the way, if you want to know the origins of the Second World War, everyone, watch that Four Minute Histories video on YouTube. Okay, disclaimer, I am the creator of what? Four Minute Histories. What? <laughs> Dear, this is my big reveal. Will you listen? Will you sign my arm? Um, so I was watching this, and I believe in that video, Simon, you mentioned was it AJP Taylor, um, who's the the main historian of, of Hitler, and uh, well, he wrote a book called The Origins of the Second World War, which is seen as the seminal book. On so was it AJP AJP Taylor who discussed? whether Hitler had a plan or was just an opportunist. It was him. What, what, what side, did he, side did he fall in? He was an opportunist. He had a plan that he wanted living space, but he didn't know how he was going to go from A to B. And things kind of fell into his lap. He didn't plan to take the Sudetenland from the Czech Republic, which I'm able to speak about now. I've just finished a can of Pilsner O'Kell. He didn't plan that. He did that because he saw how the Western powers, Britain and France notably, did nothing with when they, not invaded, but liberated in commerce, the Rhineland, which had been given, which had made a neutral zone in the Treaty of Versailles. And then the Anschluss. Oh, and he saw no one did anything. He did the Anschluss, where Austria was incorporated into Germany. And he saw we'd done nothing. So he thought, bloody hell, I'll take the Sudetenland. And only then Chamberlain said, well, well, well. And then Chamberlain signed the Munich Agreement, so he just took the rest of the Czech Republic. So they're opportunistic. 
But did it seem to you from this essay that Orwell is kind of on the other side and he thinks Hitler does have a plan? This is still in the middle of it all. No, I think Orwell knows that Hitler's plan was to invade the East and gain territory in the East, which mm -hmm. they could farm and give the German people more space to, to, to populate. But I don't, think, I don't think Orwell stipulates that Hitler knew he was going to start Operation Barbarossa in, 19, in late 1940. And Although he does write here that in Hitler's own mind, again, page 250, in Hitler's own mind, the Russo-German pact represents no more than an alteration of timetable. The plan laid down in Mein Kampf was to smash Russia first with the implied intention of smashing England, which for which he means Britain, bloody yeah. hell. Um, but that, this supports what I'm saying. So in Mein Kampf, he just talks about the East, but who did he invade first? Poland, yes. But who, who came after Poland? It was the Netherlands and Denmark. That's very West, if you're looking at it geographically. And then after the Netherlands came Belgium, and then they went through the Ardennes and invaded France and set up the Vichy government. And then went into North Africa. And then went into Yugoslavia, how it was known then, and Greece. All of this before Russia. So where's the master plan for the for Labans around there? True. It's, it's all it was all opportunistic. None of this was planned. Like the, the plan was for Britain to fall in line and, and create an alliance with Germany, whereby if Britain could keep its empire if they ignored Germans' expansion into the East. And the plan was, like Orwell says here of Afghanistan, that the Germans would expand as far east as the border of the British Empire in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. And we would both live harmoniously, uh, both being supposed Aryan superior races. But Britain didn't want to play ball, thank God. When was it that Rudolf Hess landed in Scotland? Do you remember? Was it 1940? It was 1940. It was before Operation, Operation Barbarossa. And he, one of his reasoning was, he was going to tell us, mm. listen, this is what he's planning. He's going to set up a two-front campaign. Because we mentioned before how a lot of the aristocrats and the industrialists in Britain and, and other countries were sympathetic to Hitler before 1940, 1941. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just think about that. I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but it's so interesting because Hess remembered that. Hess remembered all these British industrious and aristocrats schmoozing with him and Hitler and how they were talking. So he thought that was the reception he was going to receive. Well, that's why he landed in Scotland, because I, I can't remember the name of the aristocrat, but there was a certain Scottish aristocrat who he wanted to speak to. Yeah. I think was... Who he had already had contact with mm. in the pre-war years. But he landed just after this essay is published. And as Orwell mentions, the tides turned in public opinion. This silly-looking conservative who was keeping communism at bay has shown his true colours with and the is, invasion of Poland. And is now our enemy. And is now our enemy. So Hess, in fact, had a very frosty reception upon landing in Britain, which to his, according to people who spoke to him in Spandau, he couldn't believe. He was very surprised. He honestly thought 
he would be chauffeur-driven to Hitler. Uh, sorry, not to Hitler, to Churchill. Very Freudian slip <laughs> to, to Churchill, where he could sit down and make and negotiate. Instead, he was put in isolation in prison. What do you think, Simon, of the rather... Well, let me put it this way. Was there a particular sentence in this essay which might have shocked you or taken you aback a bit? Because I wonder if it was the same part. Shall I read mine? And then if it is yours, we can agree. Or you can read me what you I should like to put it on record that I have never been able to dislike Hitler. George Orwell, a premier socialist, premier democratic socialist of the 20th century. I have never been able to dislike Hitler. So yours is the same, right? Yes. Okay. Um, this is temporary, isn't it? Can I? Yeah, but can I read the bit that comes after? Yes. So, ever since he came to power, till then, like nearly everyone, I have been deceived into thinking that he did not matter. I have reflected that I would certainly kill him if I could get within reach of him, but that I could feel no personal animosity. That's interesting, isn't it? One thing that I found particularly interesting about it is that these days, any right-thinking person has personal animosity towards Hitler. Anyone who has lived since 1945 looks at a picture of Hitler and thinks that is a picture of one of the worst human beings who has ever lived. But Orwell is writing in 1940. So explain to us why time and space is important here. Well, again, we've mentioned before, we, we know in 1940 Hitler is anti-Semitic. We know about Kristallnacht. Uh, we know about the violence. We know, we know about the concentration camps too. But we do not yet know about the Holocaust and exactly. the full horrors of the Holocaust. And in 1940, many millions of people who will die have not died yet. Yeah. The, the horrors of the Russian, the Eastern Front haven't happened. Prisoners of war haven't been assassinated because they tried to escape. These things haven't happened yet. Christ, the Blitz hasn't happened yet. Or hasn't been sleeping down in the underground every night because of German bombs. All these things haven't happened. He still is this jumped up... This, this pseudo-Mussolini. This pseudo-Mussolini who... I mean, again, apology to, to Polish people, but they invaded Poland. That's horrific for the people of Poland, but somebody sitting in Ipswich, it's kind of... It's, it's, especially in that time, it's very far away, isn't it? It's like we now read of African wars. It's horrible, but it's not our problem. It's over there. I remember, mm. I, again, I've been reading a lot of other Orwell works at the moment. I remember reading a bit in his diaries, his Wigan Pier diaries, about how he was in a pub in Wigan when Hitler invaded the Rhineland and how he had just heard about it before he went into this pub and wanting to strike up conversation with these guys in the pub, he said, uh, you know, he got his pint and he said, I see Hitler's invaded the Rhine. No one was interested. Yeah. There you go. Do you know an interesting story about that? Mm -hmm. The divisions the, the that marched into the Rhineland were under orders from Hitler himself. If the French march back, get out. They weren't ready. Their armament program was, was in its early days. So had the British and French just shown a bit of balls, 
he would have marched straight out. He would have set back the whole thing by years. But he called our bluff. So yeah, you, I think you gave a really good explanation there of why time and space is important when we analyse every single one of George Orwell's essays. It's not apologism. It's what you have to do with anything. Had he written this in 1949, it would be a different essay. He wouldn't say that. I think the final thing we should talk about, Simon, is the idea of the appeal of, I don't want to say the appeal of fascism, the appeal of militarism. I, I think you should say the appeal of fascism. And I, I'm glad you brought that up, because for me, this is the most important aspect of the essay. Can I read the passage which might lead us into this? Go ahead. And, and tell me how eerily familiar does this sentiment sound when I read it. Also he, Hitler, has grasped the falsity of their hedonistic attitude to life. Nearly all Western thought since the last war, World War I, certainly all progressive thought, has assumed tactfully that human beings deserve nothing beyond ease, security and avoidance of pain. In such a view of life, there is no room, for instance, for patriotism and for the militaristic values. People want struggle and self-sacrifice, not to mention drums, flags and loyalty parades. What a beautiful passage and what a poignant passage. He's really hit the nail on the head there. He's suggesting that offering struggle, danger and death appealed to the German people and it appeals to people throughout history. It's how the Roman Empire got away with it. It's how Napoleon got away with it. It's how Genghis Khan got away with it. What all we're saying here is that this base instinct of human nature is that we need an enemy. We need to be part of a dichotomous relationship in our existence between good and evil. Did it strike you, though, because it struck me this way, that Orwell is not saying human nature is at fault or needs to be changed, but he's just pointing out how human nature is vulnerable to this kind of thing and perhaps suggesting that human nature could be given better alternatives. It really put me in mind that the more we've been doing this podcast and the more Orwell we've been reading, this put me very much in mind of what we were saying about, or what we were talking about in the Common Toad essay, what we were talking about in the Kipling essay, various other essays. Orwell's idea of what it means to be human and what appeals to human beings, simple messages, um, how leisure is not everything, we need to be given something more to strive towards, um, do you remember in The Common Toad how he was, he was writing about um, even if we lived in a labour-saving utopia, we would still need to need some other outlet for our energies. And if it wasn't through nature, it would be through militarism and yeah. hero worship. But again, this is a man speaking within a certain time and space. Orwell's life has been blighted by war, by conflict by a, a supposed fight between good and evil. Two major wars in his, in his lifetime before he was 50. Yeah, and his, he served as an imperial policeman. He, he's, an, he's seen imperialism close up. 
So that's a man of his time. You and I sitting here in 2021, neither of us have ever fought in a war. We're both British. Britain's not, well, um, the, I, I was alive during the Falklands War, but. Well, do, do yeah. we count, I think we should probably count the Iraq War. And Iraq the War, but it didn't affect us. We weren't bombed, were no. we? We, and we protested, weren't, uh, but we weren't, we weren't rationing. There wasn't there wasn't the same kind of jingoism about those wars, yeah. was there? there? There wasn't the jingoism of how it Britain's struggle for existence, for survival, hinged on the successful outcome of this war. There was much more of that like that in America, really, wasn't it? About um, the struggle against Islamic fundamentalism. So yeah, he goes on to say, now that we are fighting against the man who coined it, this theme we've just been talking about. Better an end without horror than horror without end. We need to understand Hitler's emotional appeal. Because if we don't study it and understand it, it will happen again. And even, you know, we can look at pictures of Hitler and think, you know, that's an evil man, that's a strange man. That odd man with his funny moustache. It's very easy to dismiss Hitler, but some of Hitler's tactics are still being used, and they are being yes. used by some very powerful people in the present day. I voted against Brexit. Oh God! <laughs> are we? Are we? Are I we, wanted to stay in the European Union. We're not. We're but I'm, we're not comparing Brexit no, no, to no. Nazism. But I'm. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. We're not comparing but Donald Trump and Nazism either. I, I find it very important to, we have to understand Brexit. We have to understand Trumpism. We have to look at the disenfranchised. Um, ISIS, why do people join ISIS? What we need to do is we need to understand why people gravitate towards extreme opinions. Yes. We, are, we are not comparing all of these things to Hitler. No, no, no. I think but people know that. But, but we yeah. are saying all of these positions are extreme positions. And why do people gravitate towards the extreme? Yeah. We need to understand that. The, the appeal of it is that it, it reaches out to base humanity, which needs struggle. Drum, drums and flags. Yeah. Another thing that's quite interesting, worthy to note, is that these men, you know, your Hitlers, Mussolinis, to a lesser degree, Boris Johnson, Trump, they're never outstanding people. By outstanding, I mean they're never people of great achievement, of intellect. Of, like Boris Johnson's been fired four times from jobs he's had. Yet, that's exactly why they appeal. It's why technocracy never works, or never will work. People, the only person I can think of that went against that mould was maybe John F. Kennedy, who was a very charismatic, handsome man. What happened to him? But True. these people are very rarely outstanding people who have achieved much, despite what they say. Yet they appeal to people for that instinct of struggle, because people can relate to it. Well, the one dictator, or no, there's maybe two dictators I could think of who buck that trend, and one is Fidel Castro, who was actually involved in a, in a you know, a military struggle, and also Tito, who... But was, was, was Castro a dictator? Well, he wasn't elected. 
He was, though. That's the thing. Initially, he was. Let's I mean, I mean, that. I will, I will say, Castro, you know, li- liberated Cuba, but then was president for sixty <laughs> years. So that's not quite liberation. Although he wouldn't have used the word president. No. He would have said El Presidente, because he? he spoke Spanish. Um, but then there's Tito as well, who was an active leader of the partisan movement. I, I can only think of, of Castro and Tito in, in those terms. Yeah, Tito, that's a good point. I, I, I just wouldn't put Castro in there on, on, the, on that point. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, you, you need to have certain characteristics that appeal to the popular population and being too outstanding or pretentious is not going to win despite you being very capable is there anything else you want to i want one other thing i'd like to quickly bring orwell's very drawn to myth and religion isn't he yes even though he was an atheist he he had a church of he specified that he wanted a church of england funeral he loved the bible and he could quote reams of the bible so yes he's very into myth and religion you know, I put that down to his public school upbringing. At public schools, you're, you're fed Greek mythology in spades. You learn Latin. I can't help thinking that played a part in that. There's a lot of mythology in your education at a public school. And the life around being at a public school, is a lot of it is based on myth and legend. Do you think that his understanding and of, religion. do you think that his understanding of the appeal of militarism came from that as well, his public school background? I, I think it certainly would have had a subconscious impact upon him, yeah, and, and an ability to understand its appeal. Because even though he recognizes that it's a very base human wish to be involved in this kind of pageantry of militarism. He doesn't say it's wrong. And there's this, I'd like to finish mentioning this, um, this quote here. Hitler has said to them, I offer you struggle, danger and death. And as a result, whole nation, the whole nation flings itself at his feet. Simon, we just mentioned 20 minutes ago how Chamberlain was prime minister when this was published. Not long after this was published, Churchill gets in. What does he offer the nation? Exactly that. Blood, yeah. toil, tears and sweat. There you go. And he said it himself. So that's a very good point. Really good point. Well, that was great, Lewis. I really enjoyed discussing that. Um, Could I just say, Simon, just as a, to, to cap it off, Adolf Hitler, I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah. Fuck him. Right. He killed that name, didn't he? <laughs> you don't meet any Adolfs now, do you, when you go down the pub? But um, last week on the podcast, we did say, send in some questions, and we promised we'd do a bit of Q&A. And you told me you had a lot of questions. I'm oh, quite excited. We've gotten them. so many. In fact, we're going to have to do part one and part two, I think. So we'll do some now, and then maybe some next week. So first question, I, I just selected some from each, each person that is from, by... Pure coincidence, Simon in the UK. And his question is to Simon, me in this park. Simon, how many hours of your week are wasted having to edit every time Lewis goes, uh, <laughs> on the podcast? Good question, Simon in the UK. The, the answer to that is a lot. 
Oh wait, I have a question here. Okay, what's that? From then? Lewis in Ireland, and it's <laughs> okay. how many hours of your week are taken up by editing out all of the silences <laughs> while Simon thinks of something to say? First question. Hi guys, I'm curious. What do you think Orwell would say about society today if he was still alive? Do you want to take this first, or should I? Uh, let's give this one to you, but why is it, they don't specify what we mean by society. Should we, it's, it's should we say general. British society, just to keep the answer Let's say shorter. British society. Yeah. This is a question I have avoided myself, because I think it's kind of, it's in a way pointless to say, you know, a man who died in 1950, what would he think of, of the current day? But it is a good question. I think Orwell would be really struck by the diversity of British society these days. I think he could he would write some very interesting essays tracing the connection between the British Empire and the current diversity of British society. Mm. I think he would be absolutely disgusted by the current state of our political setup. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact he was an old Etonian himself, I think he would be shocked that 50 years after he was dead our politics is still dominated by old Etonians. Yeah, and how they're currently trying to break up the BBC and NHS. Something I do wonder about is would he be upset at the Americanization of British culture? He seemed to be more or less accepting of the fact that America was a, an emerging world power and he wasn't against Americanisms in speech, but when it comes to tr traditional British institutions like the pub or uh, I'll like tell you what it would have been in how just a few breweries ended up owning every pub in Great Britain. Yeah, would have been upset with that. Do you think how would he have felt about craft beer? Because that I I think he might have felt that was a bit. Um, he would have complained about it, but when he realised that craft beer was get becoming was getting more independent breweries, a bit more exposure, he'd have liked that. Okay, next question. Uh, Lewis, do you have a motto? Could I choose a couple? Yes. Um, so, a non-Orwellian one, do as you would be done by, the golden rule. Very good. Treat other people as you would like to be treated. A couple of Orwellian ones. Uh, all bread is good. That's something Orwell wrote in his essay about English cooking. <laughs> and I agree, all bread is good. Favourite quote? Favourite quote um, would be his quote from the, Some Thoughts on the Common Toad. The atom bombs are piling up in the factories. The police are prowling through the streets. The lies are ste uh, streaming through the loudspeakers. But the earth is still going round the sun, and the dictators and the bureaucrats, much as they disapprove of it, can never stop the process. That is my favourite quote from Orwell. How about you? I'll, I'll just give you a general quote from a John Lennon song. Life is what happens while you're making plans. Love that quote. Too right. And I, I try, and it's highly unoriginal, but I just love Carpe Diem. I live my life by that mantra. Tell you what, I do also live my life by... You live it by Carpe Diem, I live it by Memento Mori. Um, <laughs> I do. I think about death quite a lot, and I try to remember every day. I'm gonna, you know, that, that that's actually, you know, I'm as the listeners might remember, I'm from Scotland. There's a saying in Scotland: "You're a lang time deed." 
You're a long time <laughs> dead, so enjoy life while you can. Out of all books ever written, what book do you like the most? Which I think is basically, what's your favourite book? <laughs> uh, the White Guard by Mikhail Bulgakov. Uh, one of my favourite mm. Russian writers. It's interesting because mine's Russian as well. The Idiot by Dostoevsky. Um, what would you eat for your last supper? I'd have a big wheel of Stilton and a bottle of port. Oh, that's good. So your last supper, why not? I think I'd just go for a really... I'm not sure what the best steak is in the world, but I'll go for it. If I can be a bit more specific, I think if my last meal was a three-course meal, I would start with a nice soup, maybe like leek and potato. I'd have a main course of... Are you in a gulag? <laughs> you don't like leek and potato? Oh, your last meal, mate. Um, and then for the main course... Actually, you know, I love Christmas dinner. So I, I might have turkey, actually, with some lovely And you cooked sauce. a very good one this Christmas when I came to your house. Very um, good one. And yes, then some nice Christmas pudding... Uh, and the wheel of Stilton in port, and uh, maybe some champagne with the starter. Okay, Lewis, what wouldn't you eat on your last supper? <laughs> uh, celery. Celery, okay. Um, next question. This one says, I'm one of your earliest fans. Thank you. And I was quite surprised at Lewis's young age. He's 30. I'm not 30 yet. I'm well, 30 in a few months. In a few months. And his early marriage. I mean, if you're willing, Lewis, could you tell us something about your love story? Oh, well, um, I suppose it is a bit unusual these days to marry so young, but I, I met my my spouse uh, at university. Uh, we met in the library. We bonded over obscure Japanese writers, um, <laughs> ghost stories, no surprise there. Um <laughs> And, you know, as often happens in international relationships, we made a commitment early because we didn't want to do the long distance thing. And uh, that's why I'm in Japan as well. So, Very good. Wonderful. Next question. What brought us to start this podcast? I'll let you answer that because you were the driving force behind that. I'm glad you said I was the driving force because I, I wanted to do a podcast for years. I've been listening to podcasts since about 2009. I wouldn't say I was an early adopter. I was just a bit after that. Um, I wanted to do a podcast on horror literature. Li listeners, regular listeners will remember that I love ghost stories and horror stories. But, God, there are about 500 horror podcasts out there. <laughs> And Simon's not really interested in horror, and I wanted to do something with Simon. Well, it's interesting because the first thing we ever said was you said, I want to do a podcast, and you said, I'm thinking of doing one on horror. And I said, I'd be happy to be a guest on one episode, and that's pretty much all I'd be able to. And then you came back to me a bit later with this, and this is about the only thing I think I would have done. I'm, I'm very busy, as you know, uh, but I do have this time slot on Friday nights when we record this, and... Absolute pleasure. Well, if I might just uh, say that I remember the genesis of this podcast. It was a rainy day, very horrible rainy day. You and I had gone to look at secondhand books, but we ended up like huddling in a cafe drinking oh, yeah. coffee. And I said to you, I've had another idea. Why don't we just talk about the essays of George Orwell? Because no one's done it before. And when I said no one's done it before, the explorer in you uh, <laughs> came out and, uh, and the rest is history. Yeah. And then the, the second part to that question was, what is next after Orwellian? 
I think what they're insinuating there is there's there is a finite number of Orwell essays. There is a finite number, but I think either Simon or myself or both of us will be drawing a pension by the time we've yeah, yeah. we've discussed all of them. There's um, a lot of legs in this, isn't there? There is. Uh, Novels, perhaps? Yes, uh, I think we could... I, I would love to discuss Down and Out in Paris and London. Well, all of his longer works. Mm. I also think we, there's a, we, we started our own little series within the podcast of As We Please. And there's an awful lot of themes associated with Orwell. We could just discuss themes, and there's, there's plenty of legs in this left. So for those of you who enjoy the podcast, don't worry. Don't, don't start already thinking about the end. Next question? Go on. Um, okay, so if you, could, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? I would what be... animal represents you? I would be a moorhen. I'm very fond of ponds and rivers. Yeah, I, 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 I I'm sorry. I, there's a great question, but I'm not going to answer it because I hate the whole "what's your spirit animal" nonsense. No one ever says badger. It's always lion or eagle, isn't it? Okay, my spirit animal. Well, listen, I just is said, the is the bloody sloth. Listen, I just okay. said I just said moorhen. I don't think many people <laughs> say that. Yeah, I'm a sloth, all right? I want to sleep all day. I just wake up to, um, yeah. Right, next question. What do you both look like? <laughs> I tell you, I'll describe you and you describe me. Bespeckled, bespectacled, ginger, man teleported from 1958 to 2021. Yeah, who woke up in his grandfather's wardrobe. <laughs> That reminds me of uh, when I once shared a uh, picture on Facebook of my great-grandfather and uh, our old colleague, Michelle. I, I, you probably don't listen to it, but if you do, hello, Michelle, we miss you. Um, <laughs> Michelle said, isn't it nice that you... Mabelle. Isn't it nice that you kept all of his clothes? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, how do I describe Simon? Um, tall. Uh, tall, craggy like a, a an even more handsome Graham Chapman. <laughs> right, next question. We'll do, we'll do a couple more then finish them next week. What is our biggest ideological difference? It's a good question. Good question. You're a nihilist, mm. which, yeah, I think I can say that. You've brought it up before. Yeah, yeah. You're a nihilist. I'm, I'm kind of clinging on by my fingernails. You know, I'm almost falling into the chasm of nihilism, but I'm... I, I still try to to see some goodness in the universe and in human beings. Very good. I think that's a good answer. What skill you possess are you most proud of? Very difficult one. You go first. Um, I think I have a very good bullshit detector. It makes me feel better that you know you've <laughs> deigned to spend time with me. <laughs> no, one of the reasons you're a very good pal is that you're straight up. You don't feel the need to impress upon anybody. There's no bullshit with you, which I really like. Well, I am as I am. You are what you are, take it or leave it. And I like that. My skill, I'm, I'm very, it's something that's come with my experience in education. I'm, I'm very comfortable ed educating people, telling people new facts and talking about things I'm enthusiastic about. 
and I will go on, uh, Simon will tell you, I will go on and on <laughs> about things that interest me uh, without worrying about what people think. So uh, my ability to introduce people to new ideas and new topics, that I suppose. Let's finish on this question. I think it's a great question. And it's from a listener in China um, who says that she has to use a VPN to listen to our podcast. Is, but... it, is it okay for me to say ni hao? No, oh, yeah. Um, and I think this is a wonderful question. Do you think in its own little way your podcast has the potential to make change? I hope so. It's a good question there, isn't it? I very much hope so. And, and the fact that you're, you're listening in China, I'm not going to get into the politics <laughs> of that, but uh, the fact that you're listening in China through your VPN makes me hopeful that we could encourage change and not even just political change but change in terms of the way people view the world you know my favorite jojo well essay is thoughts on the common toad and if people listen to this essay and then go out and start to appreciate the seasons and and unsung creatures such as the toad that will be enough what, what do you think so I, I think so from when when i've done my phd studies one thing i was told was only takes one person to listen or read what you've written to make change in your own little way. Think about it as a seed. And I'm not saying that you and I are the carriers of goodwill in the world and we can make the world a better place, but we're just talking about a writer we're both very passionate about and whose message we both believe in. Well, the political message at least we both believe in and we just want to share that with people. And if you agree with us, great. If not, that's good as well, because it's still making people think, make, making people address issues and through if you, Orwell. If you don't agree with us, write in orwellpod at gmail.com. We, we'd love to have some discussion. That's the whole point of whole point of Orwell. You know, it was all about free speech and discussion and the exchange of ideas without the threat of cancelling or or uh, any kind of falling out. I would love it if just a few people who stumble across this podcast, we can arrest complacency and encourage debate, encourage people to be critical of the world around them and to think about the, what's important within it. On that note. Is it time? Is it time for me to say my thing? Alice Clark. Orwell the Tenswell.